Well, um, obviously this morning we're returning to 1 Samuel chapter 28. This will be our third time uh, coming to this chapter and our final time, believe it or not. Um, uh, but this is the third time we've spent on this chapter and we've, we've spent this time purposefully because uh, for one reason this is such a strange narrative, uh, especially when we consider Saul's visit to the medium who calls up the spirit of the now dead prophet Samuel from the dead. And, and Samuel and Saul have this conversation, so it's a strange passage for that reason. Uh, so we've taken some time with it. A couple weeks ago, we spent our, our, our study uh, working through how the Bible helps us understand some aspects of what's going on there when Samuel is called up from the dead. So we sought to put some biblical parameters about what's, uh, around what's going on. And, and because we did take that time, that week, to do that, we won't spend a lot of time on those uh, details this time, but that sermon is up online if you'd like to go back and, and revisit that. Uh, however, uh, we didn't only spend that Sunday so far on the text. We also came back to it last week and looked at the first couple verses where we have the narrator focusing on uh, David and Achish, uh, where David has been spending some time in the land of the Philistines under King Achish. And, and we looked at that section last week, seeing how even though in, in many ways we see some disobedience to God on the part of David, David is deceiving Achish as he's dwelling in that enemy territory. Even though David is functioning in a way that is not perfectly obedient, we do still see God's purposes stand in David's life. He's ultimately bringing David to this place of exaltation. First of all, by this enemy king. An enemy king exalts David literally as the keeper of his head. And we, we looked at the, the gospel implications of what that picture gives us last week. Uh, and now this week, we're going to finish out the chapter uh, from verses 3 on through verse 35, uh, looking at Saul and his decline. Uh, if you remember, this chapter really uh, begins the, the rise and the decline of these two kings we've been interacting with over the course of the, of the recent passages. So David, the anointed king, now he's on the rise. Saul, the one who's been king but has been... Uh, Removed by God because of his disobedience, Saul is on a rapid decline, very rapid by the end of, of 1 Samuel. Um, and so we see these two contrasting characters set next to each other and, and the way the Lord is working really to keep his word in both, in both situations. And so this morning we look at the contrast to David's rise in the beginning of chapter 28 uh, with this long and, and really drawn out episode detailing the beginning of Saul's significant decline. Um, and, and so as we, as we, as we uh, study the decline of Saul here, uh, we, we do see that it's not a very pretty picture. It's, it's, a, it's a very sorrowful picture. Saul's moving on the one hand from fear to fear. Uh, Saul's proving his own religious hypocrisy. Uh, Saul's listening to the wrong voices. In the end, uh, Saul has the prophet's word that tomorrow he and his sons will die. So it's not a very happy narrative that's here for the rest of this chapter. Um, but while it's not a particularly happy section, we can absolutely affirm that it is a profitable section for us to think through well. Uh, and that's because, as we've continually pointed out from Saul's life, we can learn good lessons from bad examples. Uh, e even from our own experience, we know that we can benefit positively from the negative behaviors of others as we observe them. 
And again, this is something we experientially, experientially know to be true. Maybe we take a, a new position in our professional environment and the person we're following uh, wasn't so diligent in their job. And as we look at the way they uh, might have managed things, we can see, uh, obviously, from the other side of that, what we must do in order to succeed well in this new professional position we had because we learn from their bad examples. The way they set things up is not going to be how we want to set things up as we step into the role. And so there's that good lesson from a bad example. Uh, we might have had that coach or that teacher who, were, who was constantly deriding others. They were supposed to be helping. And maybe even as a, as a, as a young child, you decided, when I have the opportunity to help people, I'm going to learn a good lesson from this bad example. And I'm going to be gentle. I'm going to be upbuilding up and, and those kinds of things, uplifting to others. So we have those situations in our own life where we learn good lessons from bad examples. And there's wisdom for us in that. And this is, and this is something that's certainly true in our lives of faith. Of course, we, we, we want to learn good lessons from good examples, and we have that all throughout the Scriptures. We have that, even, even we'll dip into that a bit in, in some of David's Psalms this morning, good lessons from good examples. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 uh, has, a, has a whole uh, exposition there of the examples of faith that we're called to follow and emulate, good lessons from good examples. Um, but as we go through our Christian life, we also recognize that bad examples are profitable uh, for us to study. In fact, when the Apostle Paul speaks to the Corinthian church, uh, pointing out the value of the Old Testament, uh, let, let me just read to you how he frames the value of the Old Testament from 1 Corinthians 10. So just listen to how Paul is explaining things here to the Corinthian church. He says this, he says, Now I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, that is the people of Israel, the ancestors in our faith, we're all under the cloud and passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So he's speaking about the Exodus, Israel coming out of, out of Egypt. Uh, they all ate the same spiritual food. He said they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that, is, that followed them, and that rock was Christ. It's interesting to notice how Paul puts Christ in the Old Testament there very freely. Uh, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. Then Paul says this, Now these things took place as examples for us, so that we will not desire the evil things they did. Good lessons from bad examples. He says, Don't become idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. Let us not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in a single day 23,000 people died. Let us not test Christ, as some of them did, and were destroyed by snakes. And don't grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroyer. These things, Paul says, happened to them as examples, and they were written for our instruction. So it's a bit of a downer. But even as we think about reading our Bible, all, all, all this unfaithful stuff that Israel did, just as an example, while wandering in the desert, which we have in the book of, of Exodus and Numbers and places like that, we have the Old Testament uh, truth delivered to us there in order that by their example, they can teach us what not to do. So Paul's bringing that up here. Don't be sexually immoral like they were. Don't grumble like they did. Don't, don't worship like you ought not worship like they did. You see, what Paul's doing is he's helping us see that one function of the Old Testament Scriptures is to come to them in our, in our reading and in our study so that we as Christian believers can learn good lessons from bad examples. And, and, and Saul, as we come to Saul, especially in a chapter like this, Saul is one of those bad examples. In fact, in verse 16, after Samuel's spirit is called up from the dead, Samuel actually directly says to Saul, you are an enemy of God. Saul, Saul is a bad example. 
However, from that, from Saul's final decline, we can, we can profit. Uh, so, so we come to a passage like this, and we basically ask ourselves the question, what does it look like to p- depend upon God and His persevering grace to be active in our lives to be sure? What does it look like to be dependent upon the Lord and not be like Saul? What, what warnings uh, th- does his life offer to us? How can we consider Saul's folly well and be renewed in what it means to be faithful? So, so a passage like this isn't fun, but it's a passage that comes with it with a great deal of help. As, as it does what the Scriptures always do for us, uh, don't they? They always come with truth that keeps calling us back and building us up in what it means to know Jesus and what it means to follow Him. Um, so, so with all that said, just by way of an introduction, we'll get into the text. Uh, again, here we have good instruction from Saul's bad example. We'll just think of it in that way. And we're going to start, if you have the passage open there, uh, we're going to start in verses 3 to 7, and there we'll use the heading, Fear-Induced Folly. Fear-induced folly in verses 3 to 7. Fear, as we know, is a very real thing. Uh, There's not one of us here this morning who hasn't had some kind of deep or profound experience with fear, no doubt. Uh, We we know that fear is that reality that exists for us when we find ourselves uh, unable to deal with the difficult situation or the scary situation that's before us. That's when fear occurs. We talk about that. It happens at the intersection of inability and vulnerability. Uh, I know that I'm in trouble in some way and I can't do anything about it. And so fear surfaces as a result. And in these verses, it is exactly at this intersection where we pick up with Saul and ultimately see his foolish response to this fear that then percolates in his heart. Uh, so if you're looking at the text, if we start in verse 3, um, we actually are, we start with something we already know. Verse 3 tells us that Samuel had died and was buried. Uh, that fact is repeated from the beginning of, of chapter 25, which we've already studied. We already know that Samuel is dead. Uh, but in giving us this reminder, the narrator is really providing us context for the, the strange calling up Samuel from the dead uh, element that we're going to have later on in the chapter. And also in reminding us of this, we have a context for Saul's level of fear, which we'll be told about in a moment, because Samuel historically has been Saul's advisor. Uh, and now Samuel is gone. Uh, when a person we've looked to for counsel is gone in life, of course, even though Saul didn't follow Samuel's counsel very well, he did look to him for counsel. And when a person like that is removed from our lives, we feel the void, especially when we face the next difficult situation that comes to us. Somebody we've relied upon is gone, or we're facing a difficult situation. It makes it all the more uh, strenuous. Uh, and that's what, what we're helped to understand here. Samuel being dead, that helps us understand uh, not only what will happen later with this, with this medium uh, lady, but, but it also helps us uh, see that the pressure Saul's experiencing is particular, uh, given that this father figure type is gone now. And, and it's definitely a difficult situation that Saul's facing here and that we have the military of the, of the Philistines posturing against Israel. They're preparing to fight in verse 4. And it's not an average fight with the Philistines that we have depicted here in that uh, from the geographical details we're given, we, we can tell that the Philistines have positioned themselves in the, in the Jezreel Valley, which is a really big deal because the Philistines in the Iron Age, they were master charioteers, and, valley, and valleys are very good chariot-fighting positions, nice and flat. Historically, Israel has fought the Philistines in the mountainous region, in the caves and so on, where Israel is much more adept at battle. 
But what's happened here is the Philistines have gathered in this wide open valley, which is very conducive to a chariot-driven victory. And in verses 4 and 5, we read how Saul gathers his troops to set up in Gilboa, which would have overlooked this valley. So, so Saul has this vantage point of, of what's going on here, seeing this vast array of the Philistine army gathering with their chariots and everything else in the valley. And, and so in verse 5, we're told that Saul saw and he was filled with fear so much that his heart trembled greatly. Saul sees and fears. In fact, the Hebrew word for see and fear is, is, is the same in terms of the letters it, it uses. And there's actually going to be a play on seeing and fearing throughout this chapter. We know that the author here is emphasizing this. So Saul sees what's going on, and he's, and he's totally terrified. Israel's at a great disadvantage. All the Philistines have gathered with, uh, with military advantage. And so what, what is Saul going to do? Well, at first, at first it seems like things are going fairly well. Saul inquires of the Lord, verse 6, which, which seems like the reasonable thing to do. If we just read that and, and stop for a moment, we might wonder, maybe Saul's finally turned back to the Lord in his heart. He faces this time of significant need, significant fear. He's driven back to the Lord to trust in Him. Except we quickly see that that's not the case because when he inquires of the Lord, the Lord, we're told, didn't answer him, verse 6, by any of the regular means uh, during this epoch of the Old Testament whereby the Lord would speak. Uh, so those regular ways, the dreams or Urim or by the prophets, uh, those regular means of revelation remain silent, uh, which isn't a big surprise for us since Saul had either disregarded God's prophets or killed God's priests by this time. This isn't a, this isn't a big surprise. Uh, the Lord had already told Saul he was done with him as king back in chapter 15. Saul's under the condemnation of God. He didn't listen then. Why would, why would Saul expect God to speak uh, as if he'd listen now? Um, so the Lord doesn't answer Saul. And what does Saul do? What does Saul do? Does Saul fall down on his face like we know he can do at the end of the chapter? Saul has the ability to fall down quite dramatically. Does he fall down on his face, plead for the mercy of God, saying, if you don't speak to me, I'll have no help. I'm totally doomed. I repent of my sin. Please come and, and, and bring me along in the way of life as, as this army is, is, is arraying against us. Does he fall down and do that? No. Immediately, almost in the same breath, uh, while we're told that Saul had removed the, the mediums and the spiritists from the land in verse 4, which we know was mandated by God through Moses. We studied that a couple weeks ago. So, so there can be no practices such as calling up the dead in Israel looking for guidance. None of that must go on. Um, Saul removed those, those dark arts practitioners. However, in a situation of fear, uh, we see that he immediately shifts his interest to what God might say. And again, almost in the same breath, he starts looking for alternatives. Okay, God's not answering, so he turns to his servants and he says, are there any mediums, are there any, are there any spiritists in the land uh, that I can go to and find some, some guidance? So Saul's compelled by fear, no doubt, but that fear is driven, uh, driven him forward in total folly, a total disregard once again for what God has said. Uh, which is, it isn't surprising to us, but, but if we just stop here for a moment, we, we can learn a good lesson from this bad example as we think about what the opposite looks like in terms of our faithful living before God. Um, and as we think about Saul's exa bad example here, though, we, we can begin by identifying a couple things uh, where, we can, where we can genuinely understand where Saul's coming from. So, so just, first of all, on this level of fear that's portrayed here, he sees the Philistines arrayed against him and he's terrified and we can't blame him for that. We know in our own lives through various experiences what it's like to see and to fear. 
that we may see things coming in our lives, maybe through a medical diagnosis that causes us great fear. We may see something coming down the line, maybe through, uh, through, through financial troubles that are, uh, that are coming our way, and that can cause us fear. We may see something coming down the line in a meaningful relationship that seems to be falling apart or in a unique place of, of sorrow and difficulty, and that can cause us to fear. We see society struggling and, and, and distorted around us, and that can cause us to fear. We know what it's like to see and to fear. Saw saw the Philistines. He was afraid. We get that. We can identify. And, and then also... We can identify with the fact that Saul called out to the Lord and got no response. We can have that experience in our Christian life. It can feel that way. Here I am in this place of significant sorrow, not just significant sorrow, but significant terror, and it seems to be persisting, and I'm calling out to the Lord, and I'm calling out to the Lord, and he's not, he doesn't seem to be answering. And so along those lines, we have some sensitivity toward the fact that Saul had no response and went on in a wrong direction. And then we can be honest with our own hearts about this. There are times when the pressure's on, and we might throw a quick prayer to the Lord. We might show a bit of immediate concern to have God to help us. Uh, but when things don't change right away on our timetable, it's faith out the door, and instead we're trusting in something else and some kind of alternative. God seems silent on this, so I think I'll take matters into my own hands and do things my way. And, and while we can identify with things here, which, which we really can, Saul's example, he, he not only gives us some of these aspects that help us identify with the, the deep difficulty that he's, that he's dealing with on a personal level, uh, but we can use his example to check our responses to these kinds of, of fearful situations. Uh, because we know instead of fear driving us to foolishness, as it does here with Saul, to trusting in something that's not trustworthy, uh, we know that fearful circumstances uh, must drive us to persevere in our trusting. And, and on this particular point, there's a really wonderful example of this in Psalm 30. Uh, psalm 30 is a psalm of David, uh, and David wrote it on the other side of a very dark time. He's writing, uh, speaking about the Lord's power to rescue. He actually speaks in that psalm about being uh, almost drugged down to Sheol, so to the place of the dead, whatever the circumstances were, we don't know, but, but David was in a very bad place. And at one point in the psalm, David says to the Lord, when you hid your face, I was terrified. When you hid your face, I was terrified. So, so on the one hand, David's feeling that distance from God. He's calling, no response. But David said during that time, he was experiencing this great fear. And it's actually interesting to note that the word he uses for terrified there is an even more potent word than shows up in our passage for fear. It's like the furiest fear word you can have in Hebrew. So, for example, in Job chapter 20, Job speaks about being terrified in this way, and it's like his flesh is writhing, he says. This is the same kind of fear that, uh, that Joseph's brothers are described as having. After they, they go to Egypt, remember Joseph's brothers sold, sold them into slavery, Joseph goes to Egypt, rises to the second highest position of power in the whole land under Pharaoh himself. His brothers come later because of the famine. They're, they're finally, uh, Joseph finally reveals himself to them. You know, the brothers who tried to kill him. Here's Joseph, the most powerful man in the land. And what's their response? Well, it's this biggest fear word. It's a terrifying fear. David's experiencing the most afraid kind of fear that he can. He says in the psalm, it's like the Lord has turned his face away from me during this time. It's like the Lord's not answering. 
which again, we can bring ourselves to a place of identifying with this. Something's happening in our lives. It feels like everything's falling apart. It looks like everything's falling apart. I don't know what's going to happen. <clears throat> we can call out to the Lord, no answer. What do we do? What does David do in this psalm? From a place of, of, of flesh-writhing fear, David says, I called to you, I sought favor from my Lord. That was his response. The significance of that response is, is the verb aspect there in Hebrew emphasizing how David didn't just call out to the Lord once, didn't just seek favor from the Lord once, but it speaks of this inside-out kind of activity of unfolding habitual action in the life of David. David kept on seeking, he kept on pleading, he kept on crying out to the Lord in mercy. It was like you hid your face, but I kept on pleading and pleading and pleading and pleading for mercy. He didn't seek alternatives. He kept coming to the Lord, coming to the Lord, coming to the Lord. So, so you see in Saul's bad example that we have this quick quitting on God and running after alternatives. I prayed, I tried that, it doesn't work, okay, so here I go. Right? However, that bad example reminds us of what it looks like to respond to God's seeming silence from a posture of faith in times of fear. We don't quit quickly and run after alternatives. Like David's poem shows us, as the grand alternative to this, we keep on pleading. We keep on trusting. We keep on asking. We keep on appealing for grace upon grace upon grace. And even as we think about this, I wonder, I wonder this morning if, if that's something that's helpful for you, to be renewed in your, in your pleading with the Lord. There can be circumstances in our life that, that cause us to grow tired of asking for help in prayer. We just get weary with it. Or, may, or maybe you've been tempted toward avenues of help that are contrary to the Lord's revealed will. A passage like this calls us back. Saul asked the Lord for guidance, and then in almost the same breath, he's asking for the address of a necromancer. Right? But that's folly. That's not faith. And so we're, we're called to persevere in our asking in this way. Which, again, we have reflected so often in the Psalms. The Psalms are a wonderful place to go and have this just modeled for us. What does it look like to do this well? Psalm 121 says it very clearly. I look to the, I look to the hills for my help. But where, where does my help come from? I'm looking around. Maybe, maybe my help will come from the mountains. No, he says. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So there's this reposturing that this helps our heart to do as we, as we need it at times. My help comes from the Lord. In, a, in my time of need, I'm going to persevere in my pleading, knowing ultimately the answers will come in God's timing and according to God's plan. But we don't quit and look for alternatives. We just keep asking and we keep trusting your will be done. Which, of course, Jesus, uh, Jesus models this perfectly on his darkest night, doesn't he? He went into the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed. And then, and then he, didn't, he didn't stop there and go back and, and do whatever might have been more comfortable. We're told after that, he actually went deeper into the garden, brought a few close friends, and kept on praying. It's that persistent kind of prayer that ultimately ended for Christ and your will be done. But what a glorious example of dependence and perseverance. So, so that's first from Saul's bad example. Fear-induced folly instead of fear-induced faith. When the pressure is heavy, we persevere in our trusting. We gather a Christian believing friend around us and we say, I just need help to pray. I'm feeling weak in this. Would you come along and support me? We keep praying. We keep asking. Secondly, then, uh, we also see from Saul's bad example a kind of self-serving fidelity, a, a faithfulness to himself, if we can put it this way. And this is what we see in verses 8 to 16. Um, 
so in the whole narrative of 1 Samuel so far, we, we do see that Saul's faithful ultimately only to what serves his own ends. We've seen that multiple times in the text. In verses 8 to 16, this comes out in a variety of ways. Uh, verse 8, if we start there, we have Saul disguising himself to go visit the medium's house. Um, uh, uh, there's a, a number of things here. We, we know in Samuel that, that for the king to not be wearing his robe is, is giving us a picture of something, isn't it? To have the robe cut. David found that to be convicting in his own heart because he was, in a sense, doing assaulting, assaulting God's anointed king. Here we have Saul depicted as removing his garments, putting on commoners' clothes, and he does that for a practical reason. Uh, he needs to get to the other side of where the Philistines are to get to Endor. Endor's on the other side of where the Philistines have arrayed, so he has to travel by night. He needs to travel in a disguised way, but it is significant that he's divested himself of his royal robes. Um, and so he, he goes to the medium, uh, the medium that he himself has prohibited. Uh, off they go. And he goes to, with two of his men to the house, and she asks, um, who, who, you know, who can I call up for you? Uh, Saul says, whomever I shall name. In verse 9, there's some resistance with the medium because she's afraid that this is a, a kind of sting operation uh, because after all, the king had kicked out all the mediums of the land. He'd cut them off, uh, so there can't be any around. This could be a trap. But in response... Saul, who the medium doesn't know yet is King Saul, Saul uh, says to her, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. So we just hear the extraordinary contradiction and, and twisted spirituality that Saul's willing to deal in here. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for breaking the Lord's law, is what he says to her. On this point, one uh, ancient rabbinical writer, he makes the comment on this passage that Saul is like an adulterous woman who is with her lover and swears by the life of her husband. Right? So Saul's cheating on the Lord by going to the medium and swearing that it will be okay in the Lord's name. So that's, that's messed up. But it works, at least, at least for the moment, it seems to. Saul gets what he wants. The medium calls up Samuel. And then she, she's very upset when, uh, when, she, when she sees Samuel in verse 12. Uh, earlier in verse 5, Saul saw the Philistines and feared, remember? Now here, the medium saw Samuel and feared. Parallel language is used. And she's afraid, not because some, because some spirit has come up. Uh, that's her 9 to 5 gig. This is, this is what she does. Uh, she's used to that. She's afraid because in seeing Samuel and, and his robe, which comes up in a moment, which has also been an identifying marker of Samuel all through the book of Samuel, Samuel and his robe, right? She sees Samuel, recognizes him, and, and there with, with Saul in the room with her, she must have put two and two together because here we have the prophet and the king. Uh, here, here this is, this is making uh, it obvious to me that I have a very big problem. The medium freaks out thinking she's in all kinds of trouble because the king who kicked out all the, all the, all the spiritists is there in the room with her. But Saul, uh, being the, the sensitive person that he is, he tells her, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Again, total duplicity on the part of Saul. You're breaking God's commandment with the king of God's people right in front of you, but don't be afraid. Everything's fine. Why don't you just go ahead, verse 13, and tell me what you see. And she sees Samuel. And as Saul begins to converse with Samuel, the self-serving condition of Saul's heart just comes out all the more. So in verse 15, uh, Samuel, we, we read there, he's grumpy about being disturbed. Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Samuel uh, asks Saul that, and, and, then, and then listen to how Saul responds. Just listen to this emphasis. I am in serious trouble, replied Saul. 
The Philistines are fighting against me and God has turned away from me. He doesn't answer me anymore, either through the prophets or in dreams. So I've called you up to tell me what I should do. You just hear that, that repetition there. Verse 15 sounds like a spoiled, spoiled three-year-old at, a, at another kid's birthday party. I, me, 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 I, me, I. Saul's not concerned with the fact that the Lord has passed judgment on him and has stopped bringing him any kind of life-giving revelation. Saul's not concerned to ask Samuel what must be done to repent and return to the Lord. Instead, Saul's tattling on Yahweh for, doing what Saul, for not doing what Saul wanted him to do, and now it's up to Samuel to, to give him the help that he needs. But this doesn't surprise us because, because what do we see all through here? Well, all through here, as far as Saul is concerned, the Lord is not elevated as the one worthy of trust and obedience in Saul's life. As far as Saul is concerned, the Lord is the one who's lowered to a mere means to an end. Saul uses the Lord's name to condone the medium's spiritual apostasy. And Saul's chief concern following that is not that he's offended God and must return to God, but his chief concern is that he needs some supernatural guidance for this particular Philistine situation, and God's not giving it to me, and I want it. I, I, I. So, so here we have some enormous insight into the heart condition of Saul. Saul is faithful only to his own desires. He has this self-serving fidelity going on. And as far as Yahweh goes, as far as the covenant-keeping God of grace and rescuing power for those who will yield to Him, as far as God goes, Yahweh for Saul is really nothing but a genie in the lamp. And he rubbed the lamp, right? and he didn't get his wishes, and so now he's upset. So he'll disobey God in an extremely blatant and obvious way, because by any means necessary, I want what I want. Self-serving fidelity. But, but again, this is, this is a bad example that's instructive for us. I, me, 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 I, me, I. That's Saul. And if we're honest, we, we can get quite solace in our appropriation of the Lord at times. I can. You know, Jesus, I'm trusting in you. And I've got the situation in my life that I need, I need for you to make better right now. I need some relief from this right now. That, that's what you do, isn't it? And a little time goes by. There's no answer. Well, what's going on with this Lord? I specifically asked for, for this to improve. And I even made sure, you know, I gave online this month. I've been rubbing the lamp. Where in the world are you? So one author makes the point that at times we can view the Lord Jesus himself as our kind of domesticated chaplain. He's that spiritual peace we need to add in here and there to, to make things go more smoothly as we go, go along the path of our own choosing. Thank you very much. I call, you answer, that's the deal, Lord. I use your name as I see fit to further my motives. Even if it means I say what God says is, is okay or isn't okay is actually just fine and I'm going to walk in that way too. Uh, Saul ultimately proves faithful only, only to himself, and we can slide in that direction at times. Uh, the Lord is the one that we trust in simply to fulfill the wishes of our own hearts. And so, and so, and so we can use this bad example just to run a, a diagnostic on our own, our own relationship to the Lord. We can, we can ask ourselves things like, is my prayer life, is my prayer life more full of demands or of thanksgiving? Good question to ask of our hearts. Is my posture toward the Lord more, more full of presumption than patience? I find that's often true of me. Is my concern under God my agenda items or His revealed will? Is it I, me, 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 I, me, I? Or is it, or is it what we just, what we just saying? Take my life and let it be. You know, consecrated Lord to Thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in what? My ceaseless wishes? No, Thy ceaseless praise. So we can check our hearts by this. We have Saul's 
fear-induced folly, verses 3 to 7, and then we have this self-centered fidelity in 8 to 15. He simply needs God to do what he wants God to do, and that's what he's most concerned about. And then in verses 16 to 25, uh, we finish with his devastating finality. Saul's devastating finality. Uh, Samuel responds to what Saul says beginning in verse 16, uh, really by calling out the foolishness of Saul's position. Uh, verse 16, he says, why do you ask me since the Lord is your enemy? Why, why, are you come, why are you coming to me with this? It's the Lord who said against you. And then, and then verse 17, Samuel goes on to restate the final word of condemnation to Saul that he already spoke while he was still living, which is God has taken the kingdom from you because you didn't listen to his voice and he's given it to David instead. And then Samuel says, that's what's going on here today, because by tomorrow, Israel's going to be defeated with, by the Philistines, and you and your sons are going to be with me, that is, in the, in the realm of the dead. Tomorrow, you're going to die. You're under the judgment of God, Saul. You'll be done as king. Tomorrow, you'll be with me in the abode of the dead. Full stop. It's all over. We read that Saul responds to this by falling full length on the ground in verse 20 with fear because of Samuel's words, which is about the only proper thing Saul's done all day. He falls down, uh, overwhelmed by the reality of this. But uh, just in case we think that it is uh, because Saul is extremely spiritually sensitive now, he's been renewed in his heart, he's falling down in this posture of humble, uh, humble concern before the Lord. No, we're also told that Saul was weak from not eating. I mean, it looks good on the outside. Oh, there's Saul responding in such a, a reverent posture out of fear for what, uh, what the dead prophet has just said to him. But we're all, then we're just told in the, next, in the next section, he actually didn't eat all day either. He just, he's just physically weak as well. And then the text makes this point that the servants in the medium, are, they're trying to get him to eat. And, and, and the medium, obviously, she just wants him out of her house. This is, this is just going badly. We can't have Saul around here. She, she is obviously also wealthy because she has this meal she can prepare for him. Uh, there, right at, at, her, at her home, um, scholars point out she must have had a great deal of means to have the access to the meal that she made. But she, she, makes, this, she makes this meal. Uh, Saul won't listen to the, to the Lord, but we see ultimately here that he listens to others. They tell him to eat, and, and he, he ultimately does listen to them, and he eats. Um, uh, but again, it's just an indicator of the fact, even as the, as the text repeats the word listen here, it's an indicator of the fact that Saul's not listening to the people he needs to be listening to. Uh, Saul's completely, uh, completely turned away from the voice of the Lord. And, and in the end, he's done. Tomorrow he's going to die. And, and why is Saul going to die tomorrow? What is, what is Samuel's point in speaking to, to Saul about this? Well, Saul's going to die tomorrow because God's word, which Saul continually rejected, stands. God already said this. This is going to happen. You're, you're done. Saul won't listen to God's word. Saul will seek to manipulate God's word, but none of that makes any tiny bit of difference because in the end, it's God's word that stands. Saul's bad example shows us how dangerous it is to think, God said this, but I can do that and be okay. God said this, but I'll ignore it and go my way and be okay. God said this, but I'd like to change some things around, manipulate it a bit. After all, these are very different circumstances in our day and age. We'll make God say that instead, but no, no, it won't work. What God says just always stands. There's no way to ever in any way make what the Lord says, not what the Lord says, or make what the Lord do, what will do, not what the Lord will do. This is what we always have to remember when alternatives to trusting in Him are placed before us. Along these lines, it's Isaiah the prophet who, who reminds us that the Lord says, I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying, my plan will take place and I will do all 
my will. In Saul's case, God's word was judgment. And that word stood. And as we'll see in the end, that word is absolutely kept no matter how Saul may try to spin things. And that's a heavy truth. It's a heavy truth for us to consider. We as a society, we even as Christian believers at times, we'd like to change what God says to fit our program, to fit our plan, to fit our agenda, to fit our concerns, to fit our delights. We can write and speak and tweet all we want about those things, but God's word remains unchanged. Which on the one side, on the side of Saul here, is terrifying. The only thing right Saul did in this whole passage is fall down. God's word of judgment will stand. However, God's word stands in both judgment and promise. And that's what brings this passage together in such an amazing way. Because we see while God's word stands for Saul in judgment, we're also reminded of where this passage began. David, even in David's own folly, David has the promise of God that the Lord is going to elevate David. God's promises to David are going to stand and he's going to remain and he's going to become king of Israel. And so as we come to the end of a passage like this, we see these two things are put together very purposefully for us to consider as, as we think about going down the life of faith and what we talked about last time about those two roads that diverge before us. There are these two ways, but for those two ways, God's word will stand in either case. What he says folly will lead to, folly will lead to. What he says will become life, that trusting in him that will become life, that will become life. And we see that played out very much in this passage, and we'll see it played out as the narrative goes forward. But we're just brought again to recognize that there is no going around, there's no uh, going beside, there's no getting out of the way of God's living and active word, because what he says will stand. And, and so we're thankful as we come to a passage like this that that point is made so emphatically because it is in our times of need where that fear can induce us to start going in ways that are contrary to trusting in God. It is in our times of fear that we actually need to be most reminded of God's, uh, God's stable truth, God's stable word. Because it's during those times that we do start to think to ourselves, I, I, I do, we start to think to ourselves, maybe what God promised about preserving me isn't actually true. Maybe what God said isn't, isn't actually going to happen in my life. Maybe I'm actually going to stumble and fall finally and be separated from His love. And maybe there's no coming back from these kinds of things. But a passage like this, when we're facing fearful circumstances, it comes with this prevailing and, and very, very, very lit up message from both ends, God's judgment and God's grace. What God says He'll do, He'll do. And for those who are His, people like David, for those who are His and who are trusting in Him, God will exercise absolute provision which we ultimately see taking place through the revelation of His Son, the living Word, which we're going to begin studying in John in just a few weeks. The Word made flesh comes, and what does the Word made flesh come to do? Well, He doesn't come to condemn the world, John says, but He comes, the Lord Jesus comes, so that through Him, through the living Word, we can have life as we turn to Him which is ultimately the point of all of these passages as we understand the significance of God's word of judgment, the significance of God's word of hope. The bad example is driving us to embrace the other. We are going to be people who look for our ultimate hope in God's good and promised word, which means we're going to need to be people like David will become more and more. We need to be those who are repenting. We need to be those who see the folly creeping in. We turn back to God's way and we say, Oh Lord, I have been wandering over here, but, I, but I've forgotten. I've been foolish and forgotten that life is only found over here, trusting in you and returning to you. And we're just called back time and time again to find the hope and the peace and the cleansing that's there for us. A passage like this with the harshness and significance of judgment, 
and the extraordinary expression of grace for David. A passage like this draws us uh, to that final conclusion of God's standing word. We trust in that. We return to that. And as we do, we don't find ourselves ending in a place of judgment and dire condition. Instead, we do the exact opposite of Saul. We listen to this word that comes from God, which ultimately gives us the hope that we need. Ultimately, as it points us to the significance of God's greater king, as it points us to the Lord Jesus. And so, as we come to the end of this, uh, this particular chapter, uh, Saul's bad example, it, it drives us to self-examination at one level. Fear-induced folly in my fear, have I persisted in calling out to the Lord in my distress? Or have I started looking for alternatives? Right? Self-centered fidelity, am I more concerned with the Lord fulfilling my purposes for me than His purposes? And then devastating finality, God's word stands. That causes me to tremble as I think where I would be without grace, but that, all ca that also causes me to have great hope in the God who keeps his word to save. So we just check ourselves. Where do we find ourselves with those, with those categories today? And as we consider these things, we're renewed in our own faith and the significance of God's saving purposes for us. Let's pray. So, Father, we ask that we be renewed in your truth this morning, that your word would stand firm in our own lives, that your truth would sustain us, that your truth would draw us. We, we delight in your revelation. We delight in your instruction. Help us delight in it all the more as it points us to the glories of Jesus, our Savior and our Keeper and our Guide. Uh, we pray that we would be upheld by this today and that you would continue to sustain us as your people for Jesus' sake and his ultimate glory. Amen.